Hello and welcome to the brand new American Reformation podcast with Tim Allman and Eric Fish. We long to see the wider American Christian church fall more in love with Jesus by learning from the practices of the early church and other eras of discipleship multiplication. We want to hear from you. Make sure you comment and leave a review wherever you're watching or listening to tell us what God is doing in your life or how you feel about today's conversation. Lord, have your way in us. Let's dive in. Welcome to the American Reformation Podcast. Tim Allman here. Eric Fish will be back next week. Miss your brother. We have today, though, one of my favorite humans on planet Earth. Her name is, is Heather Choate Davis. Now, I got to get the Choate in there because there's a lot of Heather Davises, but there's only one Heather Choate Davis, right? Only one. That's why you need all the names. <laughs> you need all the names. You need all she- the names. She is an L.A.-based author, speaker, theologian, liturgist, songwriter, spiritual director. She has her M.A. in theology from Concordia University, Irvine, California. And to find out more about Heather, Heather Choate Davis, C-H-O-A-T-E. And then Heather Davis is uh, is like it's normally spelled. So HeatherChoteDavis.com. You spoke here at Christ Greenfield, where I'm blessed to be one of the pastors, um, a couple, couple months ago. And uh, there are... There are some Heather Choate Davis fans here within the Christ Greenfield family oh, of that's ministries. Fun. For sure. Yeah. They I just chatted with a guy yesterday that walked out and said, man turned in on himself, has changed his perspective. Um isn't that that's, cool? That's so good to hear. You know, that's yeah. my your your viewers slash listeners probably don't know, but that's my thesis work. Do you want me to talk about that? Why don't you? Just yeah, yeah, yeah. There. Okay, so for p- people don't know, I came to faith um, late, like in my 30s, and I'd, because of a crisis with my daughter. Um, and then I was just all in. I was just, here, you know, where are we going? What are we doing, Jesus? Let's do this thing. And then after about 20 years, I felt called to go get my master's. And I think I knew from the beginning I was going to get my thesis. I mean, I was going to do my thesis on this phrase, homo incravatus insect, because the first time I heard somebody say it, I literally just felt like, you know, the curtain was ripped open. I was like, what did you just say? And he said, man turned in on himself. And and they said, well, it was Augustine's understanding of sin. And then Luther added a little bit later. Well, the thing that's so interesting, I knew as a communications person that that would immediately, because that was my background. It was advertising and screenwriting and every way you can communicate in the culture. And I knew that that image of this, which is us, like our earbuds in and our hoodies up and only hearing what we want to hear and only listening to sources we want to listen to and only like guarding and protecting our own points of view. And I knew that that would communicate this image of sin. I thought it was so powerful. But one of my favorite things was whoever I talked to about it as I was in my early research stages, every, you know, we're in the Lutheran tribe, but every Lutheran pastor, you know, who should be pretty clear on these things would give me the same three talking points. Oh, it was Augustine. And then later Luther added some on, blah, blah, blah. They were all wrong. It's not Augustine. Augustine never said homo and cravatus sensei. It's all Luther. It's a hundred percent Luther. So I was able to then, which kind of made me feel bad because I didn't want to be like a suck up, like, oh, I'm doing my thesis on Luther. Like I was trying (laughs) to just get that part out of the way so I could get into the cultural stuff and how it is reflected in our behaviors in the modern era. Um, 
but it turned out that it was, and that and that gave me a lot of credibility with theologians because what we're really talking about. I'll I'll tell you the difference, and you can actually see the whole Reformation just in this one physical thing. For <clears throat> Augustine and the Catholic thinking, his thing was that man was turned downward, like slumping. You know, you can't see me doing it now, but like this, when we are intended to be sursum core, lift up your heart, so that, that the curvature was down and up, and he saw man as having control. Just, just lift up your heart, just do it. You know, work harder to be, you know, more pious, more awesome, right? It was this kind of a, mm. a vertical movement. Where for Luther, who of course, yes, saw, saw the vertical, but what he is saying is, no, we are turned in on ourselves mm. when Christ is calling us to live like this. My arms are wide open now. You can't, <laughs> there, I'll go see. You can see what he's calling us to live like this. And he is made of his life, the paradigm, the template of that. And yet we can't do that on our own because, you know, every 30 seconds we're like, no, no, I want to go back and protect my thought, you know, make sure I'm going to get mine. And he's like, no, just follow me. Follow me. Yeah, it's going to be vulnerable. See, like someone could tickle you, but, you know, follow me. We're going to do this. <clears throat> and that's the whole Reformation right there. Yeah. Wow. So we're in a series right now on definitions. And we, we have, if you've not followed Red Braille, Red Braille Studios, Todd Freeman, I know you're, you're aware of what's going on there. But some really funny and provocative content coming out through Red Braille and really defining different terms like law and sin, faith, grace, righteousness, flesh, and spirit. Um, so it's a lot of fun. And our definition of, of sin um, is a synonym of unbelief. Could you put your theological... How does, how does unbelief connect to um, man turned in on himself, that definition well, of sin? you know what? I think that works really well. I'm just writing down unbelief because... <clears throat> Basically, that that is really the only sin is that we think we're God and he's not. And we come to recognize that, oh, you're God and I'm not. That's really the shift. And everything else is is lower in that. Um, and so man turned in on himself is living your life in such a way that you believe that you can choose to guard, protect, um, elevate whatever is your point of view that best benefits you, that um, exalts you, when in fact we are called to pour into and pour out for the other. And so it's, you know, it's an irresistible thing. And we all do it about different things. In our unbelief, if, you know, if we're not trusting in the promises of the Spirit, through our beautiful triune God, if we're not trusting in that, well, then naturally we're going to say, well, no, I think we should do it this way. I think this is going to be better because we've got our vision of what we want it. And it's very likely not God's vision, you know, because we can't see what he's doing. So I think your unbelief thing is really exactly right. <clears throat> Man turning himself is an image that helps give you um, a physical understanding. It's a, you know, it's a metaphor yeah. so that you can see that, but, but unbelief, <clears throat> that's, that's the foundation. That's the full, that's, you know, it's the pride. The greatest sin is yeah. pride. The pride yeah. is, I don't have to believe in you. And you know what? I think this is very important. <clears throat> God gave us a choice 
of whether or not to believe. He could have just hardwired us all for faith. We could have just all been wired to believe and not even stepped out of that, right? Um, But we're wired (laughs) for, I I guess there is that original sin aspect, right? I I feel a little nervous because now I'm wading into waters that I haven't covered before. And so I might say stuff that's not even what I would actually want to say later, but I think that's true. Yeah. So when you say choice, if if you come from a passive righteousness perspective, I can't choose choose Christ. My my man and woman turned in on themselves. Sin is unbelief. My my natural inclination is to disbelieve, right? And and to try to control, put myself as the god of my universe. Um, so I, I just am. It's a provocative choice of words when you say choosing kind of this free will. I mean, Luther goes into the bondage of the will where we're not able um, to approach God's throne room, which makes sense. But, um, but I think, I think I agree. Well, no, I think me, we're going to arrive at the same place. Let yeah, me let's clarify. Go. What I mean is we can choose to not believe. Yes, we can. We can choose to live our lives as if God doesn't exist. That's mm-hmm. where the choice is. Yes. When it comes to responding to the invitation to grace, we can respond and yield. That's different than choosing, you know? No, that's good. Is that clear? That's the, that's the tension. That's the theological tension that we in our unbelief can reject God's promises. And yet he, the mercy and grace of God that he keeps pursuing us and waiting for us in faith to open our arms and say, Jesus, be be everything for me. Um, spirit, infuse my life with love and meaning and and purpose. And and Father, carry me uh, like a like an earthly father carries a, a small little infant son or daughter. That that is those are statements of faith, right, Heather? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well, and as grownups, mm-hmm. we find it very difficult, right, to to walk with the faith of a child. I'm at a stage in my life where it's you know just incredibly easy and a joy, you know, I mean, there's just, you just get to be at play in the fields of the Lord and that's an awesome thing. Yeah. But it goes against the noise in the world that's constantly telling you what to do. It does just recently. And I've been rounding back to this theme of childlike faith consistently. And what, what is it about our current reality and Christians in 2022 that make this childlike posture before the Lord almost seem, I'm not going to get too negative here, but almost seem like an impossible, an impossible task for the, the grown adult who knows so much and therefore is just riddled with fear and anxiety. Well, okay. You know, your, your show has the word American in it. We haven't talked about that problem yet, but talk about it. The, you know, the American problem is we are a capitalist consumerist culture. And we admire people who get wealthy and do it on their own. You know, the self-made man is our model, right? So the self-made man is pretty much the opposite of the trusting child. Um, And so every day we are surrounded with messages and and, and also not just messages, bills to pay, Mm. you know, and like... (laughs) A lot of conservative denominations, including our own, they uphold this model of like the not just the patriarch and the head of the household, but like the breadwinner. And this is that it's like 
do you know how few people can actually live that way? You know, and even the, in the pastor homes where they uphold that, most cases the wife is still working because they don't have enough money to pay the bills. They're not even trying to get wealthy or famous or be the new coolest like thing on Instagram. I mean, you now have for young people, their model is how can I run a business off my phone where I can be making, you know, I'm going to use this term because this is what they would call like baller money. I can be making that kind of money and just live the way I want and stay home in my, you know, jammies and have all my free time. Like that is the new paradigm. Well, you know, all kinds of trouble with that. But starting with the trouble that if your goal is I need to get, you know, 10 million followers. Well, first of all, you've now made yourself like Jesus. Like I want people to be following me. Um, very problematic, the, the social media thing. And, you know, I, I love that I can be on social media to stay connected with people because I work from home and it can be very isolating and lonely. You know, it's just me. So a lot of relationships I build by having side chats or I know about people. And so I'm grateful that it's there, but I absolutely do not and will not do any big promotion promotion of myself. I will have my sites and I'll put out what I'm doing but the, all the, the handbook of how you build these followings, number one, buying followers, which, you know, we've seen in the Christian world a lot, mm. a lot of abuse with that. You know, and I tell people, I'm a writer. I'm not a famous writer. I'm a theologian. I'm home. If you see me having, you know, a thousand followers even, then you know something's wrong because <laughs> I'm out chasing numbers, let alone. I mean, I wrote a funny blog about this, you know, why I'll never have at that time. It was like 5,000 Twitter followers, you know, and I was like, why well, I'd never have that. Well, now you would. I mean, who knows if Twitter will even be here next week. So we'll, we'll see. <laughs> but all of these things Young people, and I've talked to young pastors, you know, I end up having a lot of conversations with pastors, which is very funny in this little world that says, Heather, you can't teach or preach or speak or have authority over, you know, like a snail that they, these, all these young pastors will come to me and talk and I'll hear them use this language. Like I've got to build my platform. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? what? Did, you, did Jesus <laughs> tell you to build your platform? And, you know, so they've got that in them, you know, and it's, so it's really, really hard. I, I have been blessed in a number of ways, but the, the great irony is that my husband, who's not a believer, hmm. but loves and believes in me and wants me to have a life that um, mm. gives me meaning and purpose. And he sees the beauty in what I do. He's made it possible. And, you know, we have a nice home and we have all those things, but we don't have an extravagant lifestyle and we do all we can to, you know, maximize our space. We rent out little rooms and we have all this kind of stuff so that I can have that freedom to do what I think is the important thing to do in my life. And mm. he makes that possible. Uh, which is the great, great irony. Now we don't, but we don't sit around talking about when can we take these great trips and oh, and we're not car people and all we're not big toy people. You know, we just none of that's Simple. important to us. I mean, he's an artist too, and the best thing we can have is quiet time alone to create. Hmm. Wow. Wow, Heather, uh, so much there. I, I I love just getting you going. I want to put a pin in platform. And I want to put a pin in in young people. So 
give us a, a vision because you roll in a lot of different circles, which is what <laughs> I, I, I mean, you you know, you know, our staff, you know, Matt and Adam and Marlon and you've done singer songwriter stuff with them. Praise be to God. Just getting back from Houston, writing, writing a couple of your own songs with them. So let's let's pause on discipling, you could say, Generation Z and, and cultivating this atmosphere and you could use Adam and Marlon Lamb as kind of a, a case study of man. If more, if there would be more Adam and Marlins who were following Jesus, um, you know, growing in maturity, growing in the Word, but just having this kind of tender posture toward the Lord. If there were more of of you know the early twenty somethings who were moving in that direction, how much how much would the the narrative around Generation Z change, right? Well, and, you know, those two, that's a reflection of their own families and their faith community and what Jesus has been doing in them long before I ever met them. You know, I just get the joy of being able to know them and and being nearby if they need a prayer or have a question. And that's it. Like, I don't have any special uh, credit to claim there. Um, You know, I think I think, too, I'm going to just go back to. How much are we actually trying to hear what Jesus wants to do in our lives. And as long as you're trying to build your platform, then you're not listening to what platform he wants to build with you. You know what I mean? And whatever that, I use that term now roughly, right? And usually if it's going to be a platform, it's probably you're going to be sitting on the curb and you're going to be serving someone else. It's a very hard thing to say, I want to have a life of service, even though, even though what most young people will tell you, and I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to speak to people who are not in the church, who are not believers, what they are looking for is a life of meaning and purpose and to contribute to making the world a better place, contribute in some way. But they don't see that as having any relationship to the church and primarily because the face of the church, the public face of the church is political, it's angry, it's restrictive, it's judgmental. They whatever they're going to get. And so they are fair game for anyone. Uh, did you see the, um, some of the movies that have been done? One was a, a film and one was a documentary on the WeWorks story. Mm-mm, I mean, this is, me. ba- okay. Well, so this is basically like a cult. This is like this guy came in and started with this model, like, Hey, cause you know, cause young people all want to stay together as it was in college, like at the dorms. Right. And let, let's have these office spaces and everyone will be there and we'll all just work together. We'll share office space and like great ideas. And we'll all just go like this and great things will rise up and we'll all get to be a part of it. And it grew and grew in this huge franchise. Guys made, made billions creating this cult really of people who bought into this thing, who were brought in then to promote the lifestyle of we were Oh yeah together and you know anyone who knows anything about life is going to say you put a bunch of people in a room together who aren't working on the same project all they're doing is competing for time and resources and nothing's actually happening and they all but they were so hungry to belong to something that felt like it was the next wave of movement i mean it's a pretty frightening story and it's you know it's big in cities um and we see it i mean i'm here in la and you know, young people come here, they want to make it in showbiz or tech or whatever it is. And it's fair. They get very lonely. It's expensive. Let's just get like a a room this big, cost you more than you could possibly make in your waiter job. And, and then how do you know people? It's a, it's a commuting city. It's a driving city. Um, that's why, well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to send this to you. Um, 
the song I've been working on all year for Christmas called No Estes Solo mm-hmm. is a modern urban story of Christmas. Um, and I think those are the stories we need to see more about how people form communities in cities. Like we, I live on a cul-de-sac and, you know, people in Arizona and other places have this image of LA, you know, this horrible image of LA. Well, if you look out my window, it's like the 1950s out here. We all (laughs) know each other. We're all helping raise each other's kids. We're all on text threads all day long, watching out for each other. And so there are kids literally who I have, you know, rocked as babies who I am now keeping my eye out on as they go on through, you know, through high school, through college, through this and deep, deep relationships. Now in that relationship, everyone knows I'm the Jesus lady, right? Most of them don't go to church, but I guarantee you that they have problems during the year and then they want someone to pray with them or to talk with them and I'm there. So that's that urban relationship piece is, um, very important. Oh, this is the last thing I'm going to say, and then I'm going to give you a breath. <laughs> I'm going to let you get a word in. But what I was going to say is when you have adults, what you're in your 40s, right? People in their 40s and 50s who are still trying to get theirs, still mm-hmm. competing for their spot in the food chain, well, they're not in a position then to be generous or gracious or to lift up these young people because they see those young people as competition. And they see them as having things they don't have anymore, which is coolness and young skin and you know all that kind of stuff, right? And that's what I have found. I have lots of young people I'm in communication with. I have lots of pastors I'm in communication with. And then older retired pastors who are all like, oh my gosh, I never believed in this whole thing of like women can't teach or preach. I just had to, you know, toe the line, but they weren't free to say it until they were retired, right? And so all of that. But the P, the only, the only subset, all the demographic that has been, um, has not lifted me up really has been the ones who are my peers because Mm -hmm. these are the men in the church, the peers in because they're the men who are really thinking that they are the mega church guys and we're the guys and blah, blah, blah. And they can't even believe that I have anything to offer. Wow. Well, so much there, Heather. I love when you just go off. So (laughs) let let me, um, (laughs) let me draw a, a link between the WeWorks and the church do I hear you right in saying that WeWorks was scrapped? Because I, now I know the story. I just haven't seen the documentary or whatever. But um, that WeWorks was scratching this kind of communal itch that young people had that only the church empowered by the Holy Spirit with a right understanding, especially now I'm summarizing a lot of what you said, especially with this intergenerational openness and this uh, sense of hospitality and and connection, collaboration, that 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 is what WeWorks kind of started to do. And they're, they're, the reason it even works for us is that the church has abdicated responsibility in that intergenerational realm. Is that a fair summary? Um, well, I don't know if the, the biggest crime of the church is abdicating that intergenerational, the biggest crime of the church is selling out to conservative politics and culture wars politics and so that well, when he, you when you do let me pause when you do that you don't have arms wide open right No, because you're so, fighting this battle and I, i'm going to say this 
I, I've got, I spend a lot of time with people who, you know, are not Jesus followers and most of them tend to be, to be um, more progressive. If you ask any one of them, what does the church care about? Who is the church? The church cares about holding women down, people of color down, LGBTQ people down, reversing the courts. That's, that's who they think the, ch- the church is. They have no sense of any kind of beauty or grace or anything. And why would they? Because that's what they see. They don't go into church and they don't go into church because it doesn't see. So the, ch- the people who have um, a maturity of faith need to be out where they are. And that's a caricature, right? That they have of of the church. I don't think a lot of them actually know. And the caricature is there for a reason, and it can be justified. Uh, but I don't think I don't think that leaders have done a, a well enough job in discipling their people to have very natural conversations about who Jesus is and how he has arms open wide on man and woman turned in on themselves. So I think it's both a it's not just an evangelism problem, it's a discipleship problem. And and I think that because a lot of our churches are so hierarchical and you could say patriarchal that that we've struggled uh, to release all of the gifts of the entire body uh, so that the full tapestry and display of who Jesus is at work in the world is is muted. Is that fair? Um, it's fair, but it's not complete. Um, I, I want to add two points to it. Good. Um, you know, we're part of the Lutheran body, the LCMS body. And so I can only speak to that because I've observed it there, but I'm sure it's absolutely true in comparable things like Southern Baptists or other conservative bodies. You have older members, and these would be people my age, but I didn't grow up in the church. But Mostly men, right? Mostly men. <laughs> well, no, women too, who... Right. who um, the last time they actually really learned anything was confirmation. And, and so they don't know enough. And and in some ways you can see, it's not even fair to ask them. I've watched in the last 10 years where suddenly young guys like you are coming in saying to these like 70 year old people, just get out there and be missional, be the head. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I did what you said. I came to church every Sunday. I tithed. I brought something for the potluck. And you said, I'm good. What are you, you know? And so is it even fair to ask them when they've never been raised to think of it this way? That's a hard thing to ask. But the other piece is the social media piece. And that's the piece we never had before. And it has revealed what people's idols are. And those idols are cultural and ideological and political. And so I can tell you all the friends who I know, and I don't mean um, pastor friends. I know a lot of them are really good and trying to be gracious and trying to plant seeds that are good out there. But a lot of church members, specifically in our body, posting heinous stuff while their tag is like Lutheran pastor. Um, And people follow them and ugly stuff. So when you say, why do people, is that a caricature? Well, it's not really a caricature because people... Someone who you know, that's the only person I know who goes to church and every day they post some ugly, <laughs> ugly meme or they lift up someone who is not a, an admirable person. Um, and you go, OK, well, that's who they are then. Mm. Um, and so that's a real problem. And now we're all stuck with the muck that's been created. There was a, both a, a blessing and a muck from social media. Yeah, it is. It is a muck. 
and I don't think the reason I would say it's a it's a caricature because I think the outspoken far left, far right, however you want to say, I think it's that's not the normal Christian. I think it's the very boisterous three to five percent that create the caricature um, that then says, oh, this is more who we are. And then as human beings, we're naturally tribal, right? So we we move toward that kind of edginess, though the majority of us are reasonable. But here's the thing in our day and age, Heather, reason does not sell. The middle is not is not very appealing. Any thoughts there? 100%. But you know why? Because you can't monetize moderation. You can only monetize extremism and the whole thing. And this is going to bring us back to this capitalist thing. You know, how do we keep a 24 hour news cycle going? How do we, you know, people have to have strong opinions. I want to follow the person that says what I already believe. I want to get that itch scratched that says, you know, I'm right and they're wrong. And I, I agree with you that there are so many beautiful, gracious people in the church trying to live out their faith. But the only way you see that, you know, I guess we see people who will post little scripture verses or, you know, post. But we don't see a lot of people working hard to actually address the problem publicly by saying, you know, when you hear a, a racist, you know, thought coming from someone who you know to be a church leader, please know that that's him stuck in his own sin, just like you're stuck in whatever your sin in, is. And, you know, Jesus is here to give grace to all of us. You know, we don't denounce publicly the bad behavior of, of Christian leaders. Hmm. Yeah. Is that a lack of courage? Um, well, that's going to be boys club stuff, too. That's circling the wagons. That's, you know, well, because most of the best bad behavior is men and men protecting other men and knowing what's at stake. And I mean, how many times do we have to see the story of a male leader, a charismatic male leader blowing the church up? Yeah, no, I agree with you. So why don't we why don't we talk about that? I know this is one of your and I heard you give a talk on women in, in leadership in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod about a year and a half ago. Um, at Grand Canyon University. I thought it was spectacular. And it was given mostly to a room of of white uh, middle-aged men. So it was just wonderful to see you kind of poke that bear with, with love. Um, but you're obviously, Heather, someone who's remarkably gifted. And I love your humility. Obviously, um, you love language and you're a, a deep lover of God's God's word, and it leads you to embrace, and this is the best part of, I think, Lutheran Christian biblical theology is embracing mystery and tension, saint and sinner, now, not yet, you know, um, Coram Deo, right before God by passive faith, and then lived out uh, in a messy world actively by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we embrace, we embrace tension, but a lot of times we've struggled to embrace the tension of utilizing the gifts of the entire body, women and and men. And could you say, and I, I would make this statement, that we become over time, and this is multiple generations, imbalanced as it relates to the, the feminine voice in discipleship and evangelism within the, the wider Christian church. So just let Heather out right now. <laughs> let Heather Cho Davis out. Go ahead. Well, you know, when I think about this, I think about the, the Maslow thing of, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. Any time 
a woman does step forward and offer her gifts and teach or has something to bring to the body, there is a certain subset, not all, but, you know, unfortunately, it tends to be just over 50 percent. And that's how the elections keep going. Right. But who are so afraid, even though like I'm going to speak for me, I have made it so clear that I have no interest in being a pastor. No interest in being a pastor. And anyone who knows me would be like, that's, you know, like, I raise my kids. Don't give me 200 more of them. You know, it's like, I have no interest in that. But um, they're so afraid. I mean, I've heard them say this. They say, well, yeah, that's what someone would say if they were trying to make an end run, get a big platform. And then once you're there, you're going to, you know, do a bait and switch on all of us. It's like, oh, my God. Um, so that's, it's just sad. And, you know, I, I have to take some really ugly I mean, there'll be guys who I don't even know, but they are, they're the new, proud, robust, beard-wearing Lutheran, you know, manly men, I'm going to go chop the wood, and then I'm going to have my wife make me a pie, you know, whatever. And, you know, they write me the ugliest things, and, mm. and I'm going to burn in hell, and blah, 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 blah. And, wow. and it's like, what is wrong with you? Uh, what I look at is, what I look at is this. Here's how I see the story, because I'm someone who looks at what is the story God is telling in a life, my life or anyone's life, right? I came to faith in a Lutheran church. I came to love Christ with all my heart and soul and mind and strength through the discipling and teaching and participation of a little Lutheran church body. I came there because I was a school parent, which is the absolute model and mission of the Lutheran school system yes. to get those parents who come in not believing to believe. Yes. So you start there. I then feel so called to understand and use my gifts to help teach better to the world what I think is not getting out, that I get my master's in theology. I pay to get my master's in theology knowing I can never get a job that involves theology in this body. Never get paid for it. Mm. So I can give these gifts back out. And then I write books to help pastors do a better job of communicating to people like me. That to me makes me like the poster child of a servant in this body. So the fact that they can't lift that up is just crazy. Now, that's all the negative stuff. I'm putting that aside because what I really focus on is how many people have opened the door. Mm. And I just say... You know, they they see the good and they are listening. They're listening to what the spirits do. They're listening to what God's doing. And they invite me to speak. And so when people yell, like, women are not allowed to teach, I'm like, listen, someone has invited me to their pastor's conference or their seminary stage or their one little church somewhere, wherever it is, because they think I have something to say. I offer what I have to give. If there are men voluntarily who've come to listen, which there are, and they learn from that, well, I guess that means I'm teaching. I didn't come in and tie the congregation up and gag the pastor and take the, you know, the pulpit. I was invited. Mm -hmm. I was invited. And so to all of those who have been, it, that shouldn't be a courageous thing to invite someone who has something to teach of value, who, who has obviously been called to serve this body. Um, it's the first question I get from almost everyone, what are you doing in the LCMS? It's like, that's, 
that's where God placed me and yeah. that's where he's using me. And until he calls me out, then that's what I'll do is, is serve. I'm going to give you one example, though, that's so sad. I mean, it's really sad and it speaks to the deep fear that pastors live with because they don't want to deal with all the bullies online. And, I, and it's real. It's a real it's not just online. People lose their jobs. So there was one year, a few years back, right before COVID, I kind of I think I spoke at three or four pastors conferences, which is, you know, not really in keeping with the idea that I shouldn't be able to speak or teach. And one in particular, very large um, district in the Midwest. I was given the entire time, two days. I led five sessions and wrote an original liturgy Mm -hmm. and helped lead it. Wow. They paid me what they were going to pay Eugene Peterson. So they respected me with the invitation. They respected me by listening. They respected me with money. They um, said they had the highest attendance they'd had in 10 years, all of these guys coming. Now, while I was there, there was a photographer from their district office taking pictures. So it was all covered. Sure. Not one photo from the two days and not one Facebook post, Twitter post, nothing was publicly spoken to indicate that I had ever been there. What? And when the article came out that covered the event, there was a picture of the district president. There was a picture of the guy playing the guitar of the music that I trained him to sing to be able to lead the thing. Um, nothing. And so they want to hear from me. They understand the value. They were loving. They were gracious in all case. They bought books, every good thing. But they're terrified to take the heat. That's how bad it is. Man. What is that? That's just, that makes me really sad. And it's, we're, it's a weird, it's a weird dynamic where I guess to summarize, there's far uh, too little courage in people to just kind of question why, like someone at the district would have said, what well, didn't, didn't Heather Cho Davis like bless us? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we say something like that's a, that's a natural thing. And in, in my, not the word, I hate to go down kind of, and we're not trying to sound victim or it's all about anything like that, but they are, they are case studies. I've been, I've been kind of talking about institutional structures and, and kind of power structures in the Lutheran church, Missouri Synod for some time. And, um, I no no one ever like reaches out with a counter argument uh, to anything that I say to, to like, get on a conversation on whatever their platform is to, to have a, a kind Jesus focused conversation slash debate, debate, whatever you want to say. It's just, we're, we're a very passive aggressive and I have data and research. If anybody's followed me to kind of document how passive aggressive a lot of our specifically pastors are, we, we get into it. I think Heather, because we think it's going to be rainbows and butterflies and people are going to love us and we love Jesus and we love reading, you know, deep theology. And then it gets into these kind of power, you know, even male, female uh, dynamics and, and I think most guys just kind of shut down and regress lowest common denominator to the smallest thing that they can kind of kind of hold. And then a lot of the folks that are in necessarily the, the power structures rarely get challenged by kind of the normal undercurrent of the masses. And, and therefore you get what what happens to you and maybe in a, in a smaller sense what happens to me. It's a really it's a really strange commentary on, on who we are as a church. Uh, as it relates to you. And I'm sorry for 
it, I know you don't need my apology, but as a pastor in the Luther Church, Missouri Synod, I feel inclined to say, I'm sorry, and that stinks. Well, you're kind, but I will tell you this. I can understand, well, I understand in two ways. First of all, I, I agree with you. Most pastors are not brave men. The bravest thing that they've done was decide to become pastors. And after that, they don't tend to be very brave. I also think it's because they're encouraged to like have a lot of kids really quick. And suddenly like they're two or three years in and it's like they got a whole family and then they're not really even free to be brave because this is all they know how to do. And they've got this job and they've got this thing and they've committed to this life. And if they rock the boat, then they can't support this family that they love, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's something to have compassion for why they can't be brave. Right. On the other hand, I'm going to go back to this thing. Money changes everything. And that power-money combination out of the cinema, who are the donors and what do they care about? And, and so the, the newer pastors who are more um, jockeying for power, want to get in good with the, who the president is and who that thing is, they earn their you know, bona fides by fighting those fights. And they prove themselves and then they become elevated as being a good flunky, you know, for the Presidium or whoever's in power. And that's why that fight continues to be, you know, so important. But right now, the thing that is so deeply, deeply offensive and horrible and just makes really clear what the problems are. And I'm sure, again, we see this in all conservative church bodies. When I saw this summer that our church body was investing money to host and this is the mission board, which <laughs> the mission board hosting this major conference, the key teachings and the key speaking bodies are going to be anti-critical race theory and the reclaiming of the, you know, the family of with patriarchs and head, you know, headship, all stuff. Like, oh, my gosh. An echo chamber. What are you doing? And it's just it's just so sad. It's so sad. So we, we probably have listeners on here that are, you know, you, you threw out some very buzz political words right there. And I think I'd love to have a conversation about how it's it's not necessarily that you're anti-biblical truth and, and any of the, you know, um, gender roles. We can move into some of that, but I don't think we'd need to. It's not that you're anti that, you're anti the posture of of polarization that the church just kind of plays hook, line, and sinker into right-wing American politics. And the church the church uh, cloaks biblically uh, pretty much exactly what the political right is, is saying. And that just doesn't, because Jesus, is a, I've been wrestling with a Pharisee and the Pharisee in me and the Pharisee in us. And what would Jesus say to this intermingling between the the church and the state and the American right or the American left, because let's be honest, you're you and I are remarkably conservative in the, in the bigger, wider scope of the American Christian Church. Give me a break. I mean, uh, but but I think in, in our little tribe, we could be seen as kind of edgy. But I think it's just uh, we're. we're uh, sounding a clarion voice to say, just watch out in terms of getting yourself too tied in to, to the political right, because you move into pharisaical legal, legalistic waters very, very quick. Well, and yeah, this is not a new story. I mean, no. the thing, I, the reason why I can say it is the thing that kept me away from the church as someone who you know, didn't come to faith till in her thirties was 
that. It was, you know, Tammy Faye weeping on TV. It was, that is the public face of Christianity. It's ridiculous. It's political. It's, you know what I mean? Um, and now, of course, I'm someone who weeps constantly in public. So, you know, I just don't wear the mascara. So <laughs> it's not as embarrassing. Um, but uh, this is what I want to take two, two things you mentioned. It was, so you said gender. And then, of course, it's it's the race issue. And those are the things that people are doubling down on. And really, to me, they're all part of the same thing. It's white men wanting to keep um, their position of power and privilege in the culture and in the church. And that has to do with both things. It's keeping women under you and pe- keeping people of color under you. Mm. And those are the arguments and that's what they're fighting. And that that's not what you should be fighting about. And the thing that, I mean, one of the most radical things Christ did was come and say, women, yep. women, listen, this is for you. You know, all of this, that we are equal in the church body and they will not. And, and I want to say this. I, I stayed home to raise my kids. I've been married for 37 years. My husband supports me. <laughs> so just make it like I'm some radical feminist is just, just crazy. But what I am radical about and what I feel very strongly about, it is not for men. And I'm going to say mankind, but in this case, it's men. It is not for men to legislate the giftings of the Holy Spirit. Uh, okay. I agree Period. with that. That is where I land. And so if a woman has been gifted to do these things, then for you to resist it, well, it's like the the axe thing, right? It's like, if it's from God, you're not going to be able to stop it. And if you find yourself trying to stop it, you're going to be fighting against God. That Mm. is where I land on all of this. And in the same way, you've got a lot of men in leadership who are not gifted to be in leadership. You've got men who are pastors who are, have no business being pastors, right? I agree. I, yes, and I so agree. it is the same thing. We've got a system that creates thing, people in places where they don't belong. Mm. Um, and we hold back people who do belong there. So that's one thing. And then the race thing is just bad. That's just bad. And I've spoken to some of the guys who are the most involved. As you know, we saw some of this in, in Arizona at that talk. And they are trying to say, well, it's not about being, I'm not a racist, but it's all about me explaining that this theory is academically unsound and people need to understand it. It's like, that's just BS. You're just trying to fight this thing at an intellectual level, an academic level that gives people cover if they decide that they do not want to open their arms so that all may have rights so all may grow they certainly do not want to sacrifice so that somebody else may get a chance to get a leg up or a toe in um and then and they say well it's not because of this but have you read the theory the theory is not sound and you know we like to get that theory right so all you're doing is showing people that you are an old white man and you're a racist and you want the world to stay this way because you want to die with your knowing that your kids and your grandkids can be the majority in this country. And, you know, that's just not what this country was founded for. It wasn't founded. It's the opposite of what the country was founded for. Yeah. And I think we just saw that in the midterms. And you tell, we talked about moderation, right? I think enough people said, we are not going to allow this constant, you know, we're not accepting results. No, we're not doing that. And I was very grateful because young people had to show up and care and reclaim it and say, let's let's go back to reason. Let's go back to, 
to something that looks like reason so we can get something done. Wow. Yeah, there's, there is so much. And I think in, in this day and age, the first Corinthians 12, Romans 12, ruthless honesty about who I am and who I'm not. And that all of us have various shadow sides and I have gifts and, and gaps. And, um, I want to, I want to play my small part in God's big story right now. And I want to invite and summarizing what you say. And I agree. I want to invite as many different people cross-culturally to be, to be at the table, um, to try to multi. And that was the radical thing about the gospel and the way of the way of Jesus, the, the method that went from, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, the gospel translates into every every different culture and people group for women and, and men. And the Galatians 3.28, there is now in Christ no male or female Jew. And this is our right standing before God. So the way then horizontally we start to view one another has remarkably been changed. The, the caricatures and the categories and the boxes that when we box someone, a group of people or a woman or a man, we're boxing in the Holy Spirit. That's my point. That's my, and that is not ours to do. That's right. That is not our work to do. No institutional church has the right or the power to legislate the giftings of the Holy Spirit. So one of my major, I don't know, callings, I would say, not just as a pastor, but as a, as a leader, I guess, um, and a leader here in, in the East Valley of, of Phoenix is, you, you know, one of our beautiful communities is La Mesa, and it's a lower income community. People who are experiencing homeless, not defined by homelessness, but people just experiencing it in a season and beautifully gifted. And um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful mess, but it's a body of Christ. And, and one of my dreams is that you know, indigenous leaders would be raised up theologically, theologically trained there within that community. And it's hard for me, given the current economic realities of uh, institutional um, control over, over, you know, all the way up to ordination and really a lot of other, um, other offices within the church body. It's hard for me to even cast a vision right now of what it would look like for them to be theologically formed. And so we've partnered with the Luther House of Studies, and it's very, very um, economical. It's highly contextual. It doesn't take them out of their local context. And, and uh, some leaders that I've, that I've spoken to about this um, end up saying, Heather, well, what, what are we, we need to allow them to be, to be sent. So um, we need to use the institution because the value of the institution is then you get up and out of your context and then are, are able to be called in our denomination to another, another position. And I guess my response to that is like, I think you're missing the point that we're, we, we need to look at the economics of what it looks like to disciple the next generation, especially in lower income communities, which unfortunately are often uh, not Anglo, you know, and, and what is, what has led us is the Lutheran church, Missouri Synod to be one of the most male and, and white uh, denominations Probably the world is just about ever known over the last two thousand years. What's what's behind that? And there should be there should be repentance from those who are in positions of influence to say, yeah, we've actually. Last thing on this, and then I'd love to get your thoughts. We've actually touted, like, said, 
over and above. Man, we are proud of everything that the Lord is doing in the global south and in many places in Africa and Southeast Asia where the gospel is multiplying China, etc. We'll tell all those stories, but then we won't tell the how um, of uh, how are they doing it? How is a local pastor raising up other other leaders uh, to reach? And it's and the financials are are not an issue for them. How have they how have they done it? And and we, I don't know anything other than this. Um, yeah, it just doesn't feel like Jesus. I, I don't. I want to stop right there. It just doesn't feel like Jesus to me today. So well, what you are doing, Tim, with this model, and you and I have been talking about this for a year or two. So, but what you have been doing is basically going back to the original model. Leaders were raised up out of whatever those house churches were, whatever those community churches were. They weren't shipped in from you know the Rome Seminary or whatever. They were created there. And that is the model and should be the model because they're people who understand their own context and they're going to serve in that context. Now, I get why the system is going to fight it because it means death of the system and systems don't like to die. And people talk about the importance of going to seminary and being there. And you know what? I am a good friend of the Sems and I love those guys. There's some great teachers there and all of that. But this whole thing about like we can make sure these guys are really ready to go. There are a lot of people there students there who have no business and they're not going to be ready to serve anywhere except some tiny dying world somewhere, you know, they have no ability to communicate into a modern city or modern context or any non-white context. They're not prepared. They can't be prepared because they got formed in a little bubble there. They come out of a Lutheran bubble. They end up there. They're, that's how they're raised. It's, it's not working. So I want to encourage you to continue doing what you're doing. Yeah, you're going to take some hits. Good. That's a sign that you're doing something right. Take the hits and, and, and remember this Acts passage, right? You know, if your purpose is of human origin, it will fail. And if not, there's nothing anyone can do to stop it. And I believe it absolutely is inspired. And so I want to encourage you. you. And if there's any way I can help, you know, I'll come back out and hang with the people over at La Mesa or whatever. Because, you know, that's something I've done in a, in a recent church experience a lot of. And I think it's so important. And I here's a, a story. Uh, <clears throat> I had this experience when I was with you. You know, we did four services and I got to see all the different groups. And I was sitting in the front row in the more contemporary space. I don't know which it's called. It was kind of dark. And there was this young boy who's obviously very sensitive and intuitive Mm -hmm. and deeply spiritual. And he kept kind of walking back and forth in the front row and he would kept going up to communion. This is as service is going on. He's looking at it and he's getting ready. And I I think he's speaking maybe a little bit in tongues. And I'm like, this young man is, has a, deep call. He is just hungering to, to commune. He's hungry to be a part of it. He's, and he's going back and forth. And then like two rows back, an older woman goes, sit down, sit down mm. and mm. yelled at him. And mm. he got so sad and he walked by and I could see him crying. And he's mm. like, "That? why did she say that? Why? And I kind of pulled him in and then I was talking to him and it's just like, she's older. She doesn't know. She's from a different model. You're beautiful. You're great. Blah, blah, blah. And later when I asked people, they were part of your La Mesa community who sometimes on the weekends came there. And I thought, that's all you need to know. You know, you got people from another thing who can't deal with, they can't see the beauty in what's happening when someone is um, arriving and hungering and falling on their knees before the risen one, because they don't know that model. 
You know, they just know show up, behave, behave, say the right thing, be quiet. The pastor talks, you're quiet. That's what they know. Mm. Yeah. So good. Thanks for your time today, Heather. One final, take a minute as we close, just give a word of, of hope for the church. What are your hopes oh, for the I church? Oh, I have a good word of hope for the church. Let's you know go. what it is? Let's go. No one goes to church now except the people who actually have been really called to be there because it's no longer like the, oh, the good people go to church thing. So if you're there, it's because you've been called and you yes. want to grow and you want to listen, you want to lean in. And so even if our numbers are much lower, great, great. God's going to use that. The Spirit's going to use that. We're going to take all these small movements and go ripple, 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 ripple. And I'm very encouraged about the possibilities of that. As am I. Heather Cho Davis, you are a gift to me, to the wider body of Christ. If you want to uh, learn more with Heather, you can hit her up at Heather Choate, C-H-O-A-T-E, davis.com. And uh, yeah, your, your man turned in on himself. Your other titles of your works that can be purchased there and maybe even on Amazon? Well, Loaded Words is a book I co-wrote with someone from my master's, but it's talking about some of the stuff you're doing now in your season. How do you take these hard words and help people understand them in a way that's theologically correct and filled with grace instead of judgment? I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I did Happier Those is a wonderful little what I call backpack apologetic book. Um, that's very helpful for communicating truth to young people. Just walk. It's like a midrash on the first Psalm. So I'll just, I'll leave it there. I love it. Uh, Thank you so much, listener, for being with us today on the American Reformation Podcast. Again, Eric Fish will be back with us. And Heather, we're going to have to have you back on. It's not about building a platform at all. We just want people to know who Jesus is, how much he loves them. And if this conversation, whether it went to 12 or 1,200 people, uh, brought joy to your life and gave you a new lens to view the world, uh, please share, like, comment, all of that stuff. It helps us get the word out. We will be back next week on American Reformation Podcast. Thanks so much. Heather. Bye, Tim. See you soon. See ya.